Good morning, everybody. So this morning's uh, passage reading is Genesis chapter 15. We're going to read the whole chapter. And uh, as is our tradition, if you're able to, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? If you don't have uh, a Bible with you, in the Pew Bible, where we'll start reading is found on page 10. So it's Genesis 15, the entire chapter. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Morning, Bethel. So earlier this week, I read an article online in the New York Times called Making Promises We Cannot Keep. It's written by a medical doctor named Mikael Sikaris, who tells a story about a female patient of his who had been diagnosed with acute lymphocytic leukemia. Hopefully I said that right, if you're a doctor in the room. Um, well, this woman, she had been on chemotherapy for more than three weeks. She was improving, and it was looking like she was going to get to go home soon. Uh, but one day, she made a surprising request to Dr. Sequeres. She said, promise me I won't die here. Understandably, Dr. Sequeres did his best to reassure her without giving her a guarantee, but this woman wouldn't go for it. Eventually, he gave in and he said, quote, I promise we won't let you die in the hospital. You could probably guess how the story ends. Just a few days later, the woman's health suddenly, unexpectedly turned south and she passed away. Speaking with her husband afterward, this doctor said, I feel bad that I promised her that she wouldn't die in the hospital. 
It's almost as if she realized before we did what was brewing, what was about to happen. And the woman's husband graciously responded, you couldn't have known even if she did. Do you see the problem here? Dr. Sicaris, it seems with the best of intentions, desiring to be compassionate, made a promise to a patient that he ultimately had no power to keep. And tragically, his promise wasn't fulfilled. Now, a lighter example of this dynamic comes to mind. Hopefully, you 76ers fans in the room will appreciate this. Um, But it's the well-known process of the Sixers, or the well-known phrase of the Sixers called, trust the, I hear it, yeah, trust the process, right? So several years ago, for about a three-year period, the Sixers management purposely made decisions that made them a terrible basketball team in the short run, all in order to make them a great team capable of winning an NBA championship in the long run. This may be a bit too simplistic um, of a definition, but that strategy of losing now in order to build a team that's able to win later is what is referred to by trust the process. Looking at the Sixers situation now, you could reasonably argue that the process worked. So when they were losing, they were really, really bad. So over the course of the 2013, 14, and 15 seasons, they won 47 games, and they lost 199 games. That is terrible. But they were also able to acquire some really good basketball players in that process, and now, this season, they have a pretty good team, like arguably one of the best in the NBA. But even so, do you see a problem with a statement like, trust the process? We're talking about a professional sports team here. All kinds of things can go wrong from one day to the next. Players can get hurt. Friction can enter the locker room and team chemistry can get destroyed. Players can demand to be traded, demand more money. Managers and and coaches can leave or get fired and on and on it goes. So the point is, you can't make a statement like, trust the process with absolute certainty because you're not able to guarantee the promised result. We're currently in a series in the book of Genesis called In the Beginning God. For the last several weeks, we've been reading about a man named Abram. Abram receives some wonderful, grand promises from God, the first of which comes in Genesis 12, 1 to 3. There, Abram is an idol worshiper living in a place called Haran when the Lord intervenes in his life and he says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In faith, Abram obeys that command. He enters the land of Canaan, and there God makes another promise to him. He says in Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring I will give this land. So God promises to make Abram a great nation. He promises to make Abram's name great. He promises to bless those who bless Abram and curse those who curse Abram. He promises that in Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he promises to give him the land of Canaan. But the Lord is far from finished. In Genesis 13, 14 to 17, after Abram demonstrates his faith in God by giving his nephew Lot the first choice of land in Canaan, the Lord says to him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Those are big promises. So not only will God give Abram offspring, He'll give him offspring as numerous as the dust of the earth. And not only will God give Abram's offspring the land, but he'll give the land to Abram and his offspring forever. 
So those are huge promises, but there's a problem, or at least it seems like there's one. This morning we're in Genesis 15, and up to this point in the narrative, God hasn't done for Abram what he said he would do. He hasn't come through on those promises. So not only is there not numerous offspring, there's not even one child. And it seems unlikely that one's going to come. We've already been told in Genesis 11.30 that Sarai is barren and without child. That's Abram's wife. And add to that fact the obstacle of Abram and Sarai's ages. By the time of Genesis 15, Abram would have at least been 75, and Sarai would have at least been 65. And that's just the promised offspring. What about the land that God promised? Yes, at this point, Abram is in the land of Canaan, but there's a problem here. Other people are also in the land of Canaan. How is Abram going to possess it, given that that's the case? Also, remember what happened in chapter 14. Abram's nephew Lot is taken captive by enemies, and Abram defeats them and rescues Lot. But what if they retaliate? What if more enemies are out there? What if they attack? Is God like a well-meaning doctor who compassionately makes promises yet ultimately lacks the power to deliver on them? Is God like management overseeing an NBA team, asking people to trust him when he can't guarantee the results? Genesis 15 answers those questions with a resounding no. God makes big promises, but let's be honest, Anybody can do that. The difference is that no matter how grand his promises are in scale, God is able to keep his every word, and he's faithful and he's trustworthy to do so without fail, even when it's hard for us to see how he's at work. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's go ahead and jump into the text. We're going to look at chapter 15 in two parts. Verses 1 to 6, 1 to 6. There, God reassures Abram and makes him promises. And verses 7 to 21, there, God again makes promises to Abram, and he guarantees that he'll bring them to pass. So let's start with verses 1 to 6 and point 1, promises made. So in Genesis 14, a conflict takes place between two groups. There's a set of five kings that includes the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, versus a set of four kings, so five kings against four. In a battle between these two groups, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're part of that group of five, they flee, and the enemy takes their city's possessions as well as Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions. Abram wasn't part of that situation, but he hears about it, and he heroically comes to Lot's rescue. He defeats Lot's captors, he rescues Lot, and he brings back not only all of Lot's possessions, but uh, all of the possessions and the people that the enemy took. After this, a man named Melchizedek, the king of Salem and priest of God Most High, the text tells us, blesses Abram. He says in chapter 14, verses 19 to 20, blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram also meets with the king of Sodom here, but all the king of Sodom does, all the king of Sodom and Sodom, woo, Sodom does, is tell Abram to give the people back that he recovered, but keep the possessions. To that, Abram actually says, no. He tells the king of Sodom, you keep everything. Keep the people, keep the possessions, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So, seems as though Abram is displaying great faith in the Lord. Well, that brings us to Genesis 15:1. Here the text says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, there could be a few reasons why the Lord tells Abram not to fear here. Maybe he says that up front since his word is coming to Abram in a vision and that can be a scary thing to meet with the holy God of the universe. Maybe he says it because 
Abram is fearful that the enemies he's, he just defeated will retaliate, that they'll come back and strike. That makes sense of the statement, I am your shield. So God delivered Abram from his enemies before, and he can certainly do it again. So he would remind Abram that that's the case. Or maybe God tells Abram not to fear because of what follows in this passage. Abram doesn't have any children, and he's fearful that a member of his household, a servant, Eliezer of Damascus, will be his heir. But notice this. Before Abram even voices his concern, before he even states his worry, the Lord comes to him and reminds him of what's true. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. Yes, there are threats and enemies that lay beyond Abram's residence. Yes, there is the threat of childlessness, of God not coming through on his promise to give Abram offspring, but God lovingly, like a really good dad speaking to his child, reminds Abram of what's true. He's Abram's shield. Like Melchizedek said in chapter 14, God delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. If there's a threat out there, God can certainly help Abram overcome it. Further, Abram's reward will be very great. God promised him offspring and land, and now he is reassuring him that he's going to make good on his every promise. But Abram responds in verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He reiterates his fear in verse 3. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram and Sarai aren't getting any younger, and God is yet to fulfill his promise of offspring. He could, Abram could give his possessions to his servant Eliezer, but that's not what God promised. Well, again, lovingly, the Lord gives Abram a word of reassurance. Look at verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, notice that God doesn't even refer to Eliezer by name. It's this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. God's going to do what he said he would do. And to illustrate this even further in verse 5, he takes Abram outside and he says to him, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number, number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In chapter 13, the Lord told Abram that his offspring would be as numerous as the dust of the earth. And now he reiterates that promise and says they'll be as many as the stars of the heavens. Think about why that might be encouraging to him, to Abram. God isn't like you and me, if we were to tell someone, look at the stars. You'll have as many descendants as there are stars in the heavens. He's not like us. God actually made the stars. They are his. He owns them. Both Melchizedek and Abram have already affirmed that for us in chapter 14 when they refer to God as possessor of heaven and earth. As Psalm 147.4 says, God determines the number of the stars. He gives to them all their names. So when the Lord tells Abram that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars, he is making a promise that he is actually able to keep. He created the universe. He knows the stars by name. Do you think giving him innumerable offspring is too difficult? No, absolutely not. Nothing is too hard for God. So the promised offspring may not be here now for Abram, but that doesn't mean they're not going to come. God will do what he says, just not when or how Abram may expect. And so the question is, is Abram going to trust God? That's the same question I think that you and I are faced with today. Will we take God at his word and trust him to do what he says? Now, we're going to come back to this in our second point, but for now, 
let's admit that that is not always easy to do. Sometimes we are in situations like Abram where we are waist deep in a trial that makes God's purposes difficult to see and his promises hard to believe. But in those moments, in those seasons where it seems like God is distant or maybe even absent, we have a choice to make. Will we read the proverbial tea leaves of our circumstances and shake our fists at the Lord, or will we trust God's word and cling to him in faith, the maker of heaven and earth? God is good, and he is able to come through on his promises to us, and he always does so because he is trustworthy. That is his character. God is faithful, and he loves his people. We can, we must trust him. Verse 6 tells us how Abram responds to this word of the Lord. The text says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Some commentators point out here that the phrase, he believed the Lord, has the emphasis in Hebrew of he continued believing the Lord. So remember that Abram already demonstrated faith. He did so in chapter 12 by leaving his country, kindred, and father's house and following the word of the Lord. He did this in chapter 13 by giving Lot first choice of the promised land. He did this in chapter 14 by rescuing Lot when he was captured by the enemy. So this isn't the first time that Abram believes the Lord. He's demonstrated faith. But it is here that Moses, the author of Genesis, tells us that God counted Abram's faith to him as righteousness. Righteousness refers to behavior that meets God's standard. Because God's standard is perfection, David in Psalm 143 and the Apostle Paul in Romans 3 rightly say that there is no one righteous. We have all sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. No one meets God's standard of perfection, Abram included. Yes, he has faith, but remember Genesis 12. In verses 10 to 20, he demonstrates great unbelief in that passage. Afraid that the Egyptians will kill him in order to take his wife, he has Sarai tell them that she's his sister, which is only half true. So he puts Sarai at risk in order to save his own skin. So based on his works, Abram can hardly be said to be righteous. But that's what makes Genesis 15 so wonderful. God counts Abram's faith, not his works, to him as righteousness. The Apostle Paul picks that up in Romans 4, and he shows us just how glorious it is. In that chapter, Paul explains that justification which justification is a legal term that refers to God's declaration of someone as righteous. So Paul explains that justification has always been by faith. God didn't change his character when Jesus came. Justification has always been by faith. Righteousness has never been something that God's people or that people have to earn. Rather, it's what God graciously counts to people by faith. It's a gift a gift to be received by faith, not a wage to be earned by works. This is important to understand as we read about Abram, but it goes way beyond that. Paul says in Romans 4, 21 to 22, that Abram was fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But he continues in verses 23 to 25, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That is really good news. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. We cannot be made right with God on the basis of our good deeds. It's impossible. But thankfully, God doesn't ask us to try. Rather, God simply asks us to come to him with nothing. He asks us to come to him and trust him, 
to believe that Jesus is Lord, that he died for our sins and was raised from the dead for our justification. So if you are here this morning, and if you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Jesus, I hope you hear this as good news. Maybe you've been told that God is like some kind of divine scorekeeper. He weighs our good deeds and bad deeds, and at the end, if our good deeds outweigh the bad, maybe he'll accept us. That is a crushing weight, isn't it? If we really know the extent of our sin, if we feel it, if we are honest with ourselves, we know that if God operates like that, we are toast, every one of us. There's no chance we're going to be made right with God. Thankfully, God does not work like that. His promise to you is that if you will believe him, if you will come to him with the empty hands of faith and trust Jesus to save you from your sins, he will declare you righteous in his sight on the spot instantly. He will save you and give you eternal life in Jesus. So trust him today. And if you have questions, come and see me afterward. We can talk today. We could set up a time to talk uh, next week. Whatever, just come and see me. This is the most important truth you'll ever wrestle with in your life. So come and talk to me. For those of us who are trusting in Christ today, this is an encouraging word for us on a couple of levels. First, we have been declared righteous by grace through faith in Jesus. Yes, we've sinned against God, and yes, we deserve condemnation. But for us, the guilty verdict and the death sentence have already been carried out. They were laid on Jesus. He was made to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That means that there is no wrath left for us. God is for us, not against us. He is working all things out for our good and nothing can separate us from his love. Second, as Paul says in Galatians 3:29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Like Abram, if you're a Christian, you have received the word of the Lord by faith, and it has been counted to you as righteousness. Because that's true, you are part of Abram's family of faith. You are part of the offspring God promises in Genesis 12, 13, and 15. So does God come through for Abram on the promise of offspring? You bet he does. And guess what? If you're trusting in Jesus, you, me, we are living, breathing confirmations that God always, always, always keeps his word. He can be trusted. For Abram... That's true in regard to the promised offspring. It's also true in regard to the promised land. That brings us to the second point. Promises guaranteed in verses 7 to 21. So look with me at verse 7. And the Lord said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So just like in verse 1 of this chapter, this section begins with the Lord first speaking to Abram, giving him a loving reminder of what's true. This sounds a lot like God's word to the Israelites just before he gives them the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, verse 1, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We need reminders like that, don't we? We need to remember what God has done for us. Doing so stirs up our faith and empowers our obedience. That's why in the New Testament, we are so often reminded of who we are in Christ as we are being told how we should live. So for example, in Exodus or in Ephesians 4.32, it's be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. In Ephesians 5, 2, it's, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And we could go on. The gospel is like the north star of our lives. We need to see it. 
We need to hear it and believe it over and over and over again in order to obediently walk by faith on the narrow pathway in a world full of temptation and sin. God graciously gives Abram such a reminder in verse 7. He brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans for a reason, to give him the land. He's been faithful so far. Abram can trust him to be faithful the rest of the way. But in verse 8, Abram expresses doubt. He says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abram wants certainty. And God, again extending grace and mercy toward him, gives it. This time, he's going to do so through the form of a covenant. The ESV Study Bible has a clear, simple definition that I think is helpful here. It says, quote, A covenant formally binds two parties together in a relationship on the basis of mutual personal commitment with consequences for keeping or breaking the commitment. So a covenant, two parties enter together and make a formal agreement, and if you don't come through, there are consequences. That's going to be really important as we work through the rest of Genesis 15. So verses 9 to 11 set the stage. Starting in verse 9, God says to Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of, of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. That seems a little weird. It, it, it's difficult to understand exactly what's, what's going on here. Abram takes these animals that God gives him and splits them in half. And what he does is he lays them side by side parallel. So it's possible that what is happening here has a parallel account in Jeremiah 34, verse 18. In that verse, the Lord says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. In other words, in Jeremiah 34, 18, if you break the covenant, the calf that you cut in two, you're going to be like that. That's the consequence coming your way. One commentator, Derek Kidner, points this out and he says, quote, In its full form, probably both parties would pass between the dismembered animals to invoke a like fate on themselves should they break their pledge. Here, however, Abram's part is only to set the scene and guard it from violation. So after Abram does that, after he drives the birds of prey away, which could be symbolic for foreign nations that threaten God's people, a deep sleep falls on him as the sun goes down. And verse 12 says that dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. That dreadful and great darkness could be coming because the word of the Lord is coming to him. And again, when a holy God visits, it can be scary. But it could also have something to do with the promises that the Lord is getting ready to make in verses 13 to 16. So in those verses, the Lord gives Abram four promises. One, and this is verse 13. Know for certain, so Abram wanted certainty, he's getting it. Know for certain that your offspring, again, stop there. Notice, Abram's going to have offspring. God will deliver on his promise. Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So that actually happens. God's people are sojourners. They are servants in the land of Egypt. So this affliction does come. But think about how striking that might be. The Lord is making these rich, wonderful promises to Abram. And when Abram asks for certainty and the Lord comes through and gives it, it's your offspring will be sojourners in a foreign land and they're going to be afflicted there for 400 years. You might expect something encouraging. That seems really gloomy, right? Look at the second promise, though, verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So a couple of things there. Notice that 
God has already done something similar for Abram in the past. In chapter 12, when Abram royally messes up in Egypt, what does God do for him? Pharaoh takes Sarai as his wife, and Pharaoh gives Abram many possessions. God, unilaterally, without any help from Abram, rescues him. Pharaoh all but kicks Abram out of Egypt, and he allows Abram to leave with all those possessions. So Abram, through uh, nothing good of his own, essentially plunders Egypt in Genesis 12. That's going to happen again. So God's people, Israel, are going to be sojourners. They're going to be servants in Egypt for 400 years. But what's going to happen? God will deliver them out of that bondage. And God will bring them out miraculously, and he'll do so with Egyptian plunder. God is faithful to keep his every promise. Abram can trust him. Yes, there's going to be many, many years of affliction, but God will bring judgment on the nation that Abram's offspring serves. That harkens back to Genesis 12, even. Remember verses 1 to 3? particularly verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and, in, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. So that's the second promise. The third, verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. On the one hand, that's encouraging. Abram is going to die in peace. I read one commentary that says that this promise itself is another, has another hint of the promise of offspring because at that time, who would have ensured a proper burial for Abram? His son would have. So on the one hand, it's encouraging, but on the other hand, think about what that means. It's going to take 400 years for all this to come to roost. Abram's going to be dead before the, land, before the promised land comes. He's not going to get to see it. And then the fourth promise, verse 16, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So Abram's offspring will be sojourners. They will be servants in a land not their own for 400 years. God will bring judgment on the nation they serve. God will bring them out in the fourth generation and they will come back to the promised land. And God says, why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Abram has received these rich, magnificent promises from the Lord. But here in this text, the Lord is guaranteeing that before they come, before they see their full fulfillment, Suffering will be involved. Trial will be involved. And Abram's not even going to get to see these promises fulfilled. You may be in a position right now where you're wondering if or when the Lord is going to come through for you or somebody else. And if not now, you'll likely experience that at some point in your life. So how do you respond when those times come? I read an article this week by John Bloom, and in that article, he cites a guy named Thomas Wilcox. He says, judge not Christ's love by providences, but by promises. I think that is incredibly instructive here. Abram at this point in Genesis 15 is without child but God has promised him offspring. Abram at this point in Genesis 15 is not in possession of the land, and there are plenty of threats to that happening. And God promised it to him, but it's going to take a while. If Abram were to judge God's love by providences, by what he currently has in his hand, he would be in a heap of trouble, wouldn't he? We can fall into that trap, I think. We forget the promises 
of the Lord. And instead, we look to what we possess here and now to give us confirmation that God is for us and not against us. That is incredibly dangerous. We need to make sure that we know what God has promised us so that we can measure this rightly. Take, for example, the prosperity gospel. God promises you health, wealth, and security if you will but trust him. If we buy into that, even if we, even if we disagree with the prosperity gospel and condemn it rightly so, if we buy, buy into the fact that God somehow owes me something today, if things don't go right today, has God let me down? If, if I'm in the worst trial of my life, like, has God let me down? What is he doing? Where is he? If we begin to doubt God in those situations, or we can begin to doubt God in those situations if we're not remembering his promises to us. So prosperity gospel, they actually get something right. God does promise you health, wealth, and safety. They're not wrong. They're just wrong on the timing. God promises you health, wealth, and safety later for eternity. Jesus is going to come back, and we're going to dwell with him in a city with foundations forever. And he will wipe away every tear from every eye, and we will dwell in a land that is safe and secure. But God does not promise that to us right now. In fact, he promises us the opposite. God is not committed right now to making sure we have packed wallets and full bank accounts. God is committed right now to making sure that he makes us like Jesus and prepares us for heaven. And that will involve suffering. That will involve persecution for some. That will involve trial. This is the way that the Lord operates. And we must understand what he actually promises us so we don't start doubting his love for us. So what happens when you get cancer? Does that mean that God doesn't love you? Sure, bad things can come our way due to sin, but often that's not the case. Often it is the case that trial comes our way precisely because God loves us and is working everything out for our good. That doesn't mean that it's easy. So in, in saying that, please don't, don't hear me making light of trial if you are in one right now. Sometimes it is so hard to see how the Lord is at work. Sometimes all we can do is say, how long, oh Lord, where are you? What are you doing? But when we, make, when we cry out to God like that, let's make sure that we don't cry out to him in that way with unbelief. Let's cry out to God, how long, oh Lord, in faith, knowing that whatever trial we are currently experiencing, it won't always be so. God is for us. God is not against us. This is the creator of heaven and earth we're talking about. He always comes through on every promise. He's not asleep at the wheel. In 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9, Peter addresses the problem of people casting doubt on Jesus' return. And he says in verse 8, and nine, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God sent his son to die for your sins and raised him from the dead. God gave you faith in Jesus and made you righteous. He's the Lord who brought you out of death and made you alive in Christ. God promises that he'll finish the good work he began in you. God promises that he's working all things, all things out for your good. God promises that he won't leave you or forsake you. God promises that he cares for you and that he'll care for you. So let's trust him. When trial comes in whatever fashion, let's wait on the Lord in faith. He will deliver you. That deliverance may come soon. 
That deliverance may take years. That deliverance may take death. You may not experience that until you see Jesus face to face and he wipes your tears from your eyes with his own hand. But what you can know for certain is that God will fulfill every promise to you. He is trustworthy. And here in Genesis 15, we get to see that and how God makes these promises to Abram. Remember in verse 16, he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is going to give his people the promised land. But remember, people already dwell there. God has to deal with that. And the people who dwell there, we're told in verse 16, it seems are sinful. But God is just and God is holy and God is not going to bring judgment on them before the time is right. And so part of Abram and Abram's offspring going into uh, captivity for 400 years is due to the fact that the Amorites' offspring is not yet complete. The Lord is waiting. It can be the same with us. We don't know all of his purposes. His ways are higher than our ways. So let's be sure that we don't judge his love for us based on providences, based on what I have right now. But let's judge his love for us based on promises, promises, what he guarantees us. It reminds me of uh, the poem, God Moves in a Mysterious Way by William Cooper, in that he says, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We can miss it if we look at the providences but let's cling to the Lord and trust him in all his good and precious promises to us. Continuing in Genesis 15, look at verses 17 to 21. So Abram has laid these animals out parallel with one another. God has put Abram to sleep, much in the way that Adam falls into a deep sleep in, earlier in Genesis. It says in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. God's going to give Abram the land, and he guarantees it here with a covenant. And notice, remember what we said about a covenant earlier? Two parties enter this together with consequences if you are to break it. But what happens in Genesis 15? Abram is asleep. God enters this covenant alone. God passes through the pieces alone. He does a, it says that a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. That's reminiscent of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night in the Exodus. This is a symbol of, of the presence of God. Abram isn't going through the pieces. Abram isn't um, obligated to fulfill the covenant. God is. God goes in alone. That is a guarantee that Abram can take to the bank. So will God fulfill his promises to Abraham? Can he be trusted? Absolutely. He puts it on the line here, puts his money where his mouth is by taking on this covenant. Now, again, it's not going to be realized immediately. The promised son, that's going to take years before Isaac comes. The promised offspring, as numerous as the dust of the earth, as the stars in the heavens, you and I are a part of that. God is still fulfilling that. He's doing that through Jesus. The promised land yeah, after 400 years, Abram's offspring is going to re-enter the promised land, but they're still not going to recover this much land, what verses 17 to 21 say, until the time of David. That's going to take a long time, a long time for those promises to come to roost. Abram demonstrates, though, in Hebrews 11, 13, or what Hebrews eleven thirteen to 16 say. These, including Abram, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar 
and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to, ret to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God has prepared for us a city. The Lord's promises to us all find their yes and amen in Jesus, and in him, everything is going to come to roost. God will not fail on a single word he has given to his people. He can be trusted. He cares for us. And he's, going to need, and he's going to give us everything we need to make it all the way home. So in the meantime, let's be diligent readers of our Bibles. If we don't know the promises of God, again, if we get those wrong, if we confuse those, we might find ourselves in seasons of doubt, lacking faith, because we're trusting that God has promised us something he never did. Let's know God's promises so that we'll know what to believe and rest in. Let's know and cling to God's promises so that we can encourage each other. That's part of the reason we encourage community groups so much here. I need to hear God's promises to me. I need to hear it and believe it from God's word, but I also need to be reminded of what God has promised me by you. And you need me to tell you the same thing. God has wired us for that kind of community. So let's be diligent to pursue it. And let's celebrate the fact that all of the Lord's promises find their yes in Jesus. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we love you. We are grateful that you make promises to us at all. We don't deserve a word from you. We have rebelled against you, and we deserve condemnation. So, Father, we rejoice in the fact that you give us promises. We rejoice in the fact that you keep your promises. We rest in the fact that you are able to keep your promises. So, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, to pay for our sin and be raised from the dead for our salvation. Father, I pray that you would please keep us faithful as we wait. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Lord, help us to run hard after him. Lord, help us to trust you, even in the midst of trial, even when it is hard to see how you are at work. We need you. Lord, we need you to keep us faithful, and we trust that you will. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.